This episode of The Off-Ramp is an encore performance of an earlier holiday show. Hope you enjoy it. What music has remained popular to this day since it debuted in 1742 for a charity fundraiser? Oh, that's a good one. And what holiday was once synonymous with riots, burglary, and street gangs? Not my birthday. No, no, it's not. (laughs) The answer to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Okay, Marsha, let's get to that interesting question of yours there. (laughs) It is interesting. The question is, what music that debuted in 1742 for a charity fundraiser has remained popular to this day? So this is something that's still played to this? And popular. (sighs) 1742, gee... My pop charts don't go back that far. <laughs> so I'll just say, what is the answer, Marshall? Okay. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, Handel's Messiah. That's it. Okay. The Oratorio debuted at a Dublin, Ireland benefit for three charities, Prisoner's Debt Relief, a charitable infirmary, and Mercer's Hospital. I knew it was in Ireland, but I didn't understand that. And okay. get this. Okay. Handel wrote it for a very small group of people, not hundreds of voices like we often hear it today. Huh. It was scored for just eight instruments and was sung by 32 people. Wow, that is amazing. That's like a yeah, normal-sized choir well, for some churches. And they wanted to get as many people in as possible, so women were encouraged not to wear those big hoop skirts <laughs> <laughs> so they could smash more people. Oh, really? Yeah, isn't okay. that cool? Yeah. And 700 people attended. And they took in 400 pounds for the three charities, and they were able to set free 142 indebted prisoners. Wow, what a legacy that is. They paid off their debt. That is amazing. So they let these guys, because people were thrown in prison because they were poor in England and Ireland. Just because you're poor, you were thrown in prison sometimes. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I've sung parts of the Messiah, as you know, yeah. and it's beautiful. Did you know that he wrote that entire thing in just like three to four weeks? I think 24 days. Jeez, it's amazing. Can, it's I, gorgeous. I can't write a letter in that. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's such a large composition that NPR's music expert, Miles Hoffman, estimates there are a quarter of a million notes in the Messiah. Wow. <laughs> a quarter that, million. With all the parts, I, it's I, a quarter. Well, yeah, How if, can that be? Well, you have parts for each orchestra you know, instrument, uh-huh. and you have, you have parts for four, at least four, probably six voices, six different levels of voices, you know, bass, tenor, alto, soprano, and then there's other ones. So when you put all those together, and it's, I don't know how many pieces it is, how many pieces of music, it's many different scenes. That makes sense. But yeah. wow, what an accomplishment. And what a legacy Yeah, and for it's, charities. It's beautiful. still tingles me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know this? This is a related fact, okay? Okay. At one point in history, Italian opera was illegal Why? In, in Italy. Why? Well, <laughs> well, a lot the, of people hate it, opera, period. No, so. <laughs> that, that wasn't it. Uh, opera performances in Rome were forbidden by the Pope because many operas had sexually suggestive content. Oh, yeah. That's one reason Handel's Messiah was controversial when it debuted in England. Controversial because where they debuted it, it wasn't in a cathedral, but in an auditorium where opera 
was performed. Okay, that's interesting. So the church frowned on performing religious works in auditoriums or music halls where some suggestive comedy might be performed a night later. And that's one reason Handel debuted his Messiah in Ireland, huh. to get away from the English bishops. Oh, okay. That very, makes sense. Very critical English bishops. Well, anyway, that's that's very good. Well, I've got a good one for you, too. I'll okay. be the judge, Bob, what? as I like to say. Well, yes, you do say that a lot. <laughs> All right. All right, here's mine. This holiday uh-huh. was once synonymous with riots, burglary, and street gangs. Now, I've got a hint. Not my birthday. No, no, it's not your birthday. (laughs) Although that was pretty wild at times, as I recall, back in the day. Uh, The commercialization of this holiday may have saved it from anarchy. Really? Yeah. Um, Commercialization of this wild, riotous, uh, burglary uh, street holiday. Christmas. That's exactly right. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Now, I didn't know about this. This came in an article in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Zweig and... Apparently, Christmas, if not for the business of gift-giving, might still be what it once was, a riotous bacchanalia. You know, wild wild parties, drinking, a time when drunken gangs brawled in the streets and sometimes bashed their way into homes demanding money and alcohol. Yeah, sounds like my family on Christmas Day. It's right. Day. Well, they still have that, that tradition, don't they? Yeah, that, that was what always set your family apart in my mind. Uh, Quiet this year, COVID put him down. <laughs> no, but seriously, according to Jason Zweig, uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal, for centuries, December was downtime for most people. And it had been that way for Europeans, going all the way back to the rowdy pagan holiday Saturnalia in ancient Rome. You know, the harvest was over. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. do a lot of stuff in the winter. So when Christmas came around, hey, here's a chance to celebrate. <laughs> so Get rowdy. It went off the rails. And uh, this makes sense now. This is why Puritans made it illegal to celebrate Christmas in 17th century America. It wasn't because they were killjoys. Christmas was not like it is today. The Puritans were upset with the disorder and anarchy that surrounded Christmas. The feasting, gambling, drunken partying, that all went on at Christmas time. Wow. Well, that's... This, this was for at least three centuries in Europe. This was the tradition. No kidding. Yeah. Well, see, I never knew any of that. A historian named Steve Nissenbaum, his book, The Battle for Christmas, describes the shenanigans that once surrounded the holiday. Now, remember this. You've seen those, those great paintings of the Dutch and Flemish artists. They show drunken peasants carousing in the snow and ice with yeah. grog and everything, beard. <laughs> that, was, that was a depiction of the Christmas season wow. in those days. You could see it in plays of Shakespeare, too. You've heard of Twelfth Night? Yeah. That is a very rowdy party. Uh, It's a 1601 play about the Twelfth Night or the Last Night of Christmas. Twelfth Night is not celebrated much in Christendom today, but it was in Elizabethan England, and these weren't your grandma's Christmas parties. (laughs) (laughs) They were raucous, noisy events full of drinking, mischief-making. One tradition was cross-dressing, men dressing up as women, women dressing up as men. And in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, cross-dressing characters binge on Christmas cakes and ale. So over time, until the late 1800s, Christmas was synonymous with carousing and drunkenness. Now, one more thing on this, okay. You know the term Merry Christmas? Yeah. That was not a good term years ago. Because Merry once meant... Drinking. Huh? Be darn. So, Make merry. So what changed all this? Um, what changed it this? It wasn't prohibition. <laughs> no, it wasn't prohibition. This is a unique a, a, a way to look at it because we all think of Christmas being over-commercialized, uh-huh. right? But these historians are saying, no, it was the commercialization of Christmas that saved Christmas. Santa Claus, all of these traditions came in of gift-giving, not gift-taking. 
not people coming into your apartment and, you know, knocking things around and stealing your alcohol. You notice in uh, The Night Before Christmas, the narrator said, of Santa, I had nothing to dread. That reflected the fact that at Christmas, people in the streets used to break into houses. But even though Santa broke into his house, he had nothing to dread. And at the end of that poem, he didn't say Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. He said Happy Christmas, again, because Merry was a negative term. So these people all say that the commercialization of Christmas, gift-giving, stores starting to have their Christmas hours at night, all the mobs and the crazy people went away, and then the advertisers and the newspapers all promoted it because everybody wanted to get rid of all this violence at Christmas time. What about churches? Churches wanted to get rid of the violence at Christmas well, time, course, too. They but... were broken into by the thugs as well. Good heavens. Well, Marcia, I think we've all heard of the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. Parts of the Christian tradition date from that. So do you know what some of those traditions are that became part of Christmas celebrations? Um, the tree? The tree? Was that one of them? No, that wasn't. Okay. I have three here. Okay. So it was an ancient Roman festival that honored the agricultural god Saturn. That's why it's called Saturnalia. And it occurred around mid-December, the winter solstice, and lasted for a week. Oh, yeah, that's pretty much why they picked Christmas date, isn't it? Historians believe that the festival involved three things. Any idea what they are? All right, it wasn't a tree. What else? Presents? Yes. Okay, that's Exchange one. of gifts, yes. Food, lots of food. Yes, feasts, right? Okay, and three is Santa Claus. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Singing okay. door to door. Oh, really? All those things, yeah. Feasts, the exchange of gifts, and even singing door to door and house to house, all traditions that are now part of the Christmas season came from the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia. Santa wouldn't look right in a toga, would No, he? no, yeah. I don't okay, think so. just saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. I have some questions on other holidays that happen and occur in December. Okay. All right, Marcia, what are the roots of Christmas Boxing Day? Now, this well, is something we don't really celebrate here in the United in States. They do England, England, yeah. So what are the roots of Christmas Boxing Day? This goes back to the 1830s. I read it in a novel. Okay. And I can't remember the answer. It, it had uh, charitable roots. They, they would roots. box up left uh, leftover things or food or presents and take them to the poorhouses? There are theories. Nobody really knows for sure, apparently. But it started with members of the upper crust distributing Christmas boxes with food, gifts, and money to their servants and other employees. And then it became a different celebration. It's like post-holiday sales. You know, you take, oh, okay. take the stuff back that you didn't like and take it back. So that's that's what it uh, becomes known what as years? now. When, when it started in the 1830s. It's celebrated in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Yeah, I see it on the calendars here. Yeah, by the year 2000, many retailers began expanding their offerings for a full boxing week, running from December 26th to the 31st for returns. So that's what it became known as. Okay, here's another celebration that occurs at this time of the year. Hanukkah, our Jewish friends have that. What is Hanukkah also known as? I'll give you some choices. The Festival of Feasts, the Festival of Lights, the Festival of Freedom. Festival of Lights. How did you know that? Because I've always known that. What does that mean? Why is it called the Festival of Lights? The Hanukkah lights, the the, the candles. The oils? Uh, the and oil the candle that, that kept going. The oil in the temple that kept the menorah candles burning for That's eight right. full days. You're right. That's right. All right, now, follow-up question. On Hanukkah, which of the following is not a traditional Hanukkah food? Christmas chocolate coins, <laughs> jelly donuts, pork loin, or latkes? Um... I think jelly donuts are a part of it. 
Which and, of and the following latkes. is not? Yeah, is not. Latkes. Pork loin, jelly donuts, or chocolate coins? Chocolate what? coins. No, you're wrong. <laughs> it's pork. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> latkes. They're potato pancakes. Oh, yeah. Fried jelly donuts and chocolate coins are all Hanukkah treats. Huh. But consuming pork goes against Jewish dietary restrictions and is not commonly consumed during the holiday celebrations. However, brisket is often consumed as a meat dish in its place. Yum, yum. Okay. <laughs> what does the European holiday Krampusnacht translate ah, to? Krampusnacht. Krampusnacht. And I'm going to give you some choices. Krampus night, Krampus knocking, Krampus nose, or Krampus naughty. <laughs> Let's go with naughty. It isn't. It's Krampus night. That's what it means. Oh. The night that an evil character named Krampus visits children who behave badly, bringing them coal and mischief. What country is this? It started in Germany, apparently. Krampus comes from the German word Krampen, which means claw. So Krampus was a half-goat, half-demon figure. And the myth is believed to have originated in Germany. This, again, this is stuff that happens during December, during the holiday season. Again, Krampus is the central figure of the Krampusnacht, <laughs> celebrated December the 5th in Austria, Germany, and many parts of Central Europe. So now, what is celebrated on December the 6th? That's, uh, uh, what's his name? Our kids found out about it, and then we had to do it. St. Uh, Nicholas Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, St. Nicholas Day for good little girls and boys yeah. follows Krampusnacht <laughs> for bad little girls and boys. It celebrates a holy figure, the actual St. Nicholas, who okay. is a bishop and who is famous for his generosity. And it's observed in many northern European countries. On St. Nicholas Day, December the 6th, St. Nicholas visits and leaves gifts for good children, often under their pillows or in shoes or stockings. I'll never forget that day, the afternoon, the kids came home from school and said, why don't we have stockings up for St. Nicholas? And I said, say what? And I had, <laughs> everybody else in class has it. Well, good God. I didn't get the memo. But from then on, we did it. So St. Nicholas Day. So that was a major crisis for you. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Is that what yes, you're talking? Yes, that's when I called you at work and said, hey, come home, bring some candy. <laughs> Okay. Oh. <laughs> there is a uh, seven-day holiday that starts on December 26th called Kwanzaa. Yes. What is that dedicated to? Oh, and that's... here are the questions. Oh, okay. Traditional foods, prayer, black cultural figures, a different philosophy for each of the seven days. Which one is it? Well, I don't know if it's cultural I'll go with that. That's exactly what it is. Kwanzaa celebrates African-American culture for seven days. And each of the days is dedicated to one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Unity, self-determination, collective responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. All good things. Now, I got a question for you. There was a popular 1980s song that mentioned the Kwanzaa Feast of Karamu. Now, you will know this song, but you probably didn't know this is even mentioned there. So, what is it? Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder, All Night Long by Lionel Richie, I'm Coming Out by Diana Ross, or Human Nature by Michael Jackson? I'll go with Stevie Wonder. It's Lionel Richie's All Night Long. Oh, really? He pulled from different cultures for the lyrics, including karamu, the Swahili word for a feast or banquet. That's also the name of a family and community meal that takes place at the last day of Kwanzaa. So we have a lot of different celebrations that take place during this time of the year other than Christmas and yep. Hanukkah. Uh-huh. I think it's time for a break. All right, let's take it. All right, we'll be back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. 
And Marsha. Smith. <laughs> I dozed off there. <laughs> I'll be back in just a moment with more of the off-ramp. Just me. <laughs> Nobody else, just me. It wouldn't be any fun without me, honey. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. we're back, and Marsha is back, too. <laughs> With the off-ramp here for the Cedarbrook Public Library and uh, for our podcast platforms around the world. Okay, here's a good uh, trivia question. Which Christmas novelty record used the names of three record company executives in its lyrics? In fact, it made these three record company executives' names famous. The hint is first names only. Any idea? It's, remember the Christmas song by David Seville and the Chipmunks? That's it. That's the one. Okay, Simon. Okay. Okay, Theodore. Okay. Okay, Alvin. Alvin! So there's a David Seville and the Chipmunks. David Seville's real name was Ross Bagdasarian. He was a record producer. And uh, Alvin, Simon, Theodore. These are the names of executives at Liberty Records, which produced the song. Oh, see, I love that. See, I start out every Christmas morning with that. Really? <laughs> you know, okay, maybe You not. like the chipmunks, okay, huh? No, Alvin well, and the you chipmunks. Know, I don't. Guess you're in the mood. You know, I got that. I remember my dad went out the night before Christmas in 1958, and the story came back later was that he went out to find this record at the last minute, and he went all over town in Worcester, Ohio, and finally found it at a drugstore where they sold, you know, records along with everything else. And Your it was dad did Christmas, the... Christmas time is year. Yeah. Well, did he love it or did he think you? No, love he got it? it because of me and my sister. Oh, you know? that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty neat. So okay. you must be what 80, 90 years I'm old. I'm ninety-five years old right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> you like that song though, and then you start every Christmas with that. Very interesting. No, I don't. Really. Oh, okay. I was lying. <laughs> what Christmas plant? And there aren't that many, so I don't think you'll miss this one. What Christmas plant was named after an American diplomat who brought the plant back to the U.S. after he served in a foreign country? That must be the Christmas dandelion. Albert Dandelion <laughs> brought that back. Albert Dandelion. <laughs> okay. no. There aren't that many Christmas plants. Obviously, have... the dandelion is not a Christmas plant. No, that plant. is wrong. We have two plants in the house that are Christmas. We do? Mm-hmm. It's not the Christmas tulip. <laughs> Those red plants what are they called i never can think the names well that's the answer oh the red plant the christmas red plant <laughs> and that was by albert red and that would be called the poinsettia plant oh okay <laughs> and it came to the u.s from mexico via a guy named dr joel roberts p-o-i-n-s-e-t-t huh. of south carolina and he was the uh, american diplomat in mexico he discovered the starry red flower in the early 1800s. The Mexican legend associated with the plant involved a poor little boy who went into the church with no present for the holy child. And just before he went inside, he knelt and prayed in tears, wishing he had a present to give for the baby Jesus. Hmm. And when he rose from his knees, he found a green plant with red blooms springing up at his feet. He broke off some of the blossoms and ran into the church to present the flowers as gifts to the holy child. The poinsettia plant. I'll be darned. Mexicans must have had a name for that. But they didn't call it poinsett. They <laughs> <laughs> called it the red flowering plant. All right. Well, here's something that we associate with winter. Not necessarily Christmas, but it was an accident. The accidental discovery of artificial snow. 
<laughs> yeah. Ever wonder what happens when you spray water on a cold running jet engine in a wind tunnel? Well, that's what happens. Well, just the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Happened to you. Uh-huh. In the 1940s, a Canadian scientist, Dr. Ray Ringer, was trying to replicate conditions that caused icing on planes. He and his colleagues tried spraying water into the air of a lower temperature wind tunnel directly in front of a jet engine's intake. The objective was to create ice, but instead they got snow. Lots and lots of it. They got so much snow that Dr. Ringer and his researchers had to stop the experiment to repeatedly shovel snow out the back of the wind tunnel. They could have just went and got some sleds, but no. You'd think at some point someone would say, we're making snow! Think of how much money we can make doing this for ski slopes. But no, they didn't. They were scientists. So they kept shoveling. Yeah, over and over again. (laughs) Dr. Ringer had no interest in creating a snowmaking machine. Neither he or his lab patented the work, but they did publish their results in scientific journals. And surprise, commercial folks picked up on it in 1949. And over the next 60 years, scores of commercial snowmaking systems were built all over the world using Dr. Ring's discovery. He could have been one rich dude. Yeah, he was just trying to replicate the conditions that caused icing on airplanes, and he accidentally invented artificial snow. Now, can you imagine that? It's like, oh, we made snow. Let's go on to the next experiment, you know. <laughs> well, that's that's lack of imagination. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it took people who ran ski resorts to go, hey, wait yeah, a minute wait a here. Minute. Yeah, just thinking, and it's constantly is now more than ever. You know, it's funny. I think now you think about all the startups and all the entrepreneurs, people today who are inventors automatically think, how can I make money with this? That's Uh just the way people have changed their minds about this. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, here's something we could use. Here's an app we could use. So so the artificial snowmaking app. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's down the road yet. St. Lucia's or Lucia's Day L-U-C-I-A, is a December celebration in which of these countries, Marcia? Brazil, Sweden, Germany, or Mexico? St. Lucia. Uh, Brazil. Just a moment. (laughs) Which country? Brazil. And you're wrong, (laughs) Marcia. It's celebrated in Sweden, Norway, and some parts of Finland and Italy. It's also known as St. Lucy's Day, but Lucia, Uh L-U-C-I-A, on December 13th. Lucia, or Lucia, or Lucy, was an ancient mythical figure who was known as a bearer of light for dark Swedish winters. Modern Swedish celebrations appoint someone to play her role. She leads a procession of children dressed in white and wearing wreaths of light in their hair on December 13th. Ah, okay. All right. Okay, Marcia, I have a Buddhist holiday that also takes place in December. It's called Body Day. B-O-D-I, Body Day. What does that celebrate? Siddhartha's birth, Siddhartha's death, the creation of Buddhism, or the date of the Enlightenment? What's the day called again? Body Day. I'll say the last one, the Enlightenment. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's celebrated by Buddhists in China, Japan, and parts of India on December the 8th. So it's another December holiday in the world. It marks the moment in 596 BC when Buddhism's founder, Siddhartha Gautama attained enlightenment, becoming the Buddha or the awakened one. He's said to have achieved this while sitting under the body tree. The day is marked in peaceful ways such as meditation, chants, and traditional meals of tea and cake. That sounds good to me. <laughs> a lot of a lot of cake and hot drinks. Anytime you're celebrating anything this yeah. time of the year yeah. around the world, it's That's interesting. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, Marcia, here's another holiday. This is in Japan. What does Japan's Omasoka 
holiday celebrate. Does it celebrate New Year's Eve, Constitution Day, Hiroshima, or a complete house cleaning? <laughs> Does it bring you joy, Bob? Uh, all right. Um, well, I got to tell you, it is the house, house cleaning. cleaning. Yes, got, it is. Oh, God. That goes along with the, what was the book? Yeah. Tidying Up, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Tidying Up goes way back, apparently. Omisoka, one of Japan's most important traditional holidays, occurs December 31st. It's marked with rice, straw rope decor, the ringing of bells, and a complete cleaning of the house to bring good luck. It's to welcome the Shinto god who is said to enter the house at midnight. And apparently wants a clean house when he enters. (laughs) Good to know. Doesn't live here. Yeah, no. Okay. (laughs) We'd have a little trouble with that. All right. Why is it rude to put your elbows on the table when dining? Oh, this is perfect for the holiday season. <laughs> I remember as a kid getting called off on that. I thought, what's wrong with putting my elbows on the table? Yeah, what? What's that problem here? Well, well what Bob, is the problem, Marsh? <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to be able to go to a Christmas or a holiday dinner and That's put right. my elbows on the table. Why is that a bad well, thing? Well, where do many of these things come from? If it's not Dickens, it's who? Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, or I mean, if it's not Shakespeare, it's who? Dickens. <laughs> oh, of the Bible. That's it. It's from the Bible? Yeah, the Old Testament. So the Jews and the Christians. It includes the line, be ashamed of breaking an oath or a covenant and of stretching your elbow at dinner. <laughs> be ashamed <laughs> of that. Explain that. Many have translated this directive as a warning to keep elbows off the table. It's the translations of people that have screwed up everything. Anyway, but table manners were originally introduced to prevent mealtime fights. And that's why the knife and the fork helped establish boundaries at the table. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Yeah. And keeping your elbows off the table uh, also allowed you to see the person... uh, down the road oh, from you. if they had their knife or fork yeah, ready, ready to, to, to kill you. Ready to stab you in the face. <laughs> Din- dinner must have not have been a, the fun time we have today. No, no, not, not so really. So there's all these weapons and people are eating, but somebody <laughs> might kill you with their Apparently, weapons. Apparently there were a lot more fights at the dinner table. Holy cow. Yeah, never discuss politics. Don't discuss politics. <laughs> if thee discuss politics or religion, <laughs> thee shall fight. Oh my, who knew that? Well, there's enough rules in the Bible anyway. I don't need to be told to keep my elbows off the table. Okay. Okay, good. I'll finish with a quote. Okay. Hanukkah, as we were talking about before, is upon us. As Adam Sandler so beautifully sings, put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah. (laughs) So much funica. Okay. (laughs) But here's some meaningful words from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Hanukkah is about the freedom to be true to what we believe without denying the freedom of those who believe otherwise. Very good. And since you mentioned that, what is the alternative festival that was invented by a TV show because of Christmas being so commercial? There was an alternative? What? Oh, Festivus? Festivus. <laughs> Festivus on Seinfeld. An alternative to overly commercial Christmas season. Festivus for the rest of us? Yes. And do you remember what that's celebrated with? Yes, it's a pole. An aluminum pole. And the activities include the airing of grievances and feats of strength. (laughs) I love it. I've got a Festivus pole on the hearth in the family room. (laughs) So I think we've covered everything today. Hanukkah, Festivus, Kwanzaa, Christmas. There are a few more things in the world, Bob, but let that be enough for today. That's enough for now. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us when we return next week with more fun facts and trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.